All right. Thanks a lot, Aaron. It's good to see everybody this morning. My name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor here at Charles River Church. Super excited to be here with you. Hope you're excited to be here. Um, for us, I was just thinking about this uh, recently. For us, every Sunday morning is a, is a big deal. Like this Sunday morning, we have uh, quite a few people out of town, but I just want you to know, regardless of that, every Sunday morning for us is a big deal because what it is for all of us is the opportunity to come together and to collectively engage in the mission that God has for us. Now, the mission that he has for us uh, doesn't just happen here alone. It happens individually for us as we scatter out the doors this afternoon. What we have going on this morning is an opportunity to collectively engage in, in the mission. And if you look at the front of our river guide there at the bottom, it says our mission very simply is connecting Boston to Christ. That's our heart. We're all about connecting Boston to Christ. And so if it's your first time here or you're a guest and, and this Jesus stuff is new to you, our heart is for you. We want to see you connected to Christ and to a life-changing relationship with him. If you're a regular here or you're, you're, you're a Christian, you've been, you've been following the Lord for quite some time, our heart for you is that you would join this mission. You would discover a life of living for something bigger than yourself, living for something that doesn't end at retirement. It lasts and spans into eternity. And so we're all about you joining that mission. So for example, collectively how we've engaged in that even thus far this morning is we've come together. Many have come early in the morning, set all this stuff up. Many are working with children now, um, electronics, technology, all the stuff that blows my mind right now. Right? People are doing that in, in, in preparation for helping people come to know Jesus Christ and have their life changed by him. And so that's what we're all about no matter where you're at on this spectrum. We're about connecting Boston to Christ and that mission is for you. It's for you. And, and I just want you to know that, be thinking through that. This morning, as we have, many of us have already been connected into a life-changing relationship and we're going deeper in a life-changing relationship with Christ, what we're able to do now is to connect more in Christ um, as we worship him and, and sing songs to him, as we come to him with hearts ready to hear from him in the scripture and say, change me, mold me, make me into your image. That's what we're all about. So I want to let you know that, get you excited about that. It's a big deal uh, for us to come together and to do that this morning. So where we're at this morning is Mark chapter 7. Make sure you're there. We'll always have it on the screen, but make sure you, you're there if you have your own Bible. Um, also, if you don't have your own Bible, you can always grab one on your way in. And uh, if you don't have one at home, take that one home, keep it, it's yours, it would make us real happy if you break that bad boy in. We're uh, in this series called Pictures of Jesus, and we're looking through each chapter of Mark at different pictures of Jesus so that we can get these, these, these vivid images of who Jesus is, the man, the message, the, the, the mission, the, the methods that he employs, and, and we're going to take those pictures and God's going to file them into this mental photo album. So as we go through life, it's incredible how God, the Holy Spirit, will bring those things to our minds, to our remembrance. Oh, this is what Jesus did. This is how he lived. This is how he would respond. We're able to apply that. So that's what we're doing in this series, Pictures of Jesus. Today, we get yet another picture of Jesus from Mark chapter 7. Why don't we spend some time in prayer, and then we'll jump right into it. God, we thank you so much for this morning that we have to come and to worship the risen Christ. Lord, we are so grateful that you are, are sovereign over all things, that you are powerful over even death. And Lord, that you have given us that power that we too might in you be victorious over 
um, over death, Lord, because you have conquered the grave, Lord. Thank you for that. God, I pray uh, this morning that, that you would be glorified in, in, in our song. You would be glorified in the readiness of our heart to respond to what you have to say to us. Uh, Lord, I, I just pray that you would be glorified in our fellowship. You would be glorified in our prayer. It's, it's all about you, Jesus. It's all about you. And so we commit this uh, this morning to you. And uh, Father, as we, as we look at some scripture this morning um, that is uh, very appropriate, especially appropriate for for Boston and New England at large. God, I pray that you would stir us and you would help us to uh, apply it. Uh, God, we want to pray for um, just some people in our in our, our church body that are um, just going through some difficulty right now. I, I, I pray for Holly as um, she's uh, on bed rest. And Lord, we trust in you that this will be her last week of bed rest and that uh, the, the results for the the lung test for the for the baby girl will come back that she's ready to deliver and um, Lord, we just thank you for new life and so we commit her to you Lord, we also pray for for Sendula. she's away lord we we know that she has some physical struggles that she's been battling and we just commit her to you Lord, we pray uh, in the name of jesus by the power of the holy spirit lord that you would bring about healing in her life and uh, lord she has a big heart for you and god we just pray that you would just bring her healing God, for, for um, others who are away, uh, we think of even missionaries that are away, China, Chase, Paul in Australia, Amy in Ukraine, Lord, we commit them to you. We pray that you would just be using them, you would be changing them, doing your work in them, and then also doing your work through them, Lord. Uh, we just commit all these things to you. And then last, God, we want to pray for this area of West Boston that you have so burdened our hearts to reach. God, we pray that you would do a powerful work here. We think of, of surrounding neighborhoods. We do think of West Roxbury and Rosendale and Jamaica Plain. We think of, of Dedham and Westwood and, and Needham and Newton and Brookline. God, do a, a, just a powerful work that is beyond us so that we get no credit. You get credit because it was you who moved. And Lord, these things are our morning prayers that we give to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, so Mark chapter 7, hoping you're there by now. Um, I was thinking about it this morning, and, and uh, I know that you're all done with snow, right? We're done, right? We're absolutely done. You're done digging out your car. You're done fighting, wrestling people over parking spaces, right, because of those, those terrible, you know, little icebergs are all over the sides of the roads. We're done with it, right? And we were especially done with it after a past week where we had a few days where we just started to shrink the icebergs, and the warm-up was kind of like this big tease, right? And so we were officially done, and then I woke up this morning just thinking, you have got to be kidding me. It was freezing, right? And, and so I know we're done with winter, so I'm going to go ahead and apologize in advance. I'm going to give you one more, one more winter Christmas uh, just story, and uh, then we'll be done, right? We'll be done with winter forever, right? At least until next year. So uh, I was thinking about it. Here's my winter story for the morning. Um, I was thinking back through... Uh, a family tradition that uh, I'll never forget. My mother always did this growing up. Was the day after Thanksgiving, we always did this. Is she would break out this this porcelain nativity set that she had, and it was really tall, you know, porcelain nativity set. And she would set it up every every day after Thanksgiving, put it on top of the the upright piano in our house. And so we'd set the whole thing up, and she'd even set up the manger scene. But one thing she never put uh, into the set until. Uh, Christmas Eve was little baby Jesus, right? Little porcelain baby Jesus. He didn't go into the manger scene until uh, Christmas Eve. And so Christmas Eve, she would gather the family together. My mom's real sappy and all about tradition. You know, she'd gather the family together. 
And uh, we'd read Luke chapter 2 together, Jesus arrives, right, the whole story. And then she would give one of the three kids just this little porcelain Jesus, and it was your privilege this year to be able to put Jesus into the manger scene. And that was just for us, oh, it's my year to do Jesus in the manger scene. It's going to be awesome. We were all excited about that. And it was totally cool. We loved that until, of course, you know, I hit 13 years old, and then suddenly anything tradition that mom or dad does is suddenly like, oh, this is ridiculous, right? You're just suddenly too cool for it. And so now I'm a little older, have a family, and I've been thinking about it, and if, if we can ever get a nativity scene, right now we don't have any place to put a nativity scene in our little apartment, but if we get one, um, I was thinking I might, I might engage in that tradition. I think that it's kind of cool. It's got meaning. It's got purpose. It gets the kids thinking about Christmas and him coming, and it's, it's cool. I like that. Now, now, I enjoy it. I'll probably do it with my family as we, you know, go through the years until Isaiah's 13, and suddenly he's too cool for it like I was, right? We'll do that. But it would be an entirely different thing for me to come up here this morning and say, okay, Christmas, here's what we're going to do. Say it's, it's December now, and I come before the church, and I say, it's Christmas. The Wyatt family is putting out a nativity set. And we're not going to put baby Jesus in until New Year or Christmas Eve. And I also demand that all of you do it. And if you don't, you're in sin, right? That's like an entirely different thing, right? To hold you to my traditions. Because suddenly what I'm doing is I'm taking my tradition and I'm elevating it to the same level as the Scripture so that if you don't do what I do, now you're in sin. Does that make sense? I mean, that would be, that would be absolutely uh, absolutely ridiculous because I don't have, I don't have that God-given authority to tell you outside of Scripture what is sinful or not, and, and probably a good thing because I would demand that it is sin to listen to country music, and that would really make some of you guys upset, right? But uh, I, I don't have that. I don't have that God-given authority. Unfortunately, I don't have that power, and so. When, when, I, uh, when I come up here and I preach or when we bring in other guys to stand up and to preach, here's what we're not going to preach. We're not going to preach our agenda. We're not going to preach my opinion. What we preach is the Bible, right? We preach the Bible because who cares what I think, right? We care what the Bible thinks and, and what God thinks. And so where we're at uh, this morning in Mark chapter 7 is, is Jesus uh, and his disciples have been traveling and now they are at this place where his, his disciples unintentionally kind of open up this controversy with regard to tradition. So that's where we're at this, this morning, where Jesus is dealing with men who have taken their tradition and elevated it to the level of Scripture. And Jesus takes this opportunity, as he likes to do, and makes a really important point, a teaching opportunity out of Kind of a hairy situation. So let's look at it. Mark chapter 7, 1 through 5 is where we will, uh, where we'll start. It says, Now the Pharisees gathered to him, Jesus, right? And some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, uh, and they, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and, and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So we'll stop there. 
Let me just kind of break this controversy, controversy down for you uh, just for a little while here. What, what's been going on is Jesus has been uh, traveling, doing ministry, really just blowing people's minds with just astonishing teachings. People are just, it says, astonished at his teaching. He's been doing just these unbelievable, extraordinary kind of, of miracles. And it appears now from the context that he's back in Capernaum where Peter's from. He's kind of headquartered his ministries. We've talked about that in Capernaum where Peter's from, living at Peter's house, eating at Peter's house, and, and kind of going out and doing ministry, bouncing back and forth on different sides of, of the Sea of Galilee. It appears in the context he's back here where we spent a lot of the, the earlier chapters of the book of Mark. Um, and now here in, in verse 1, what we see is that some scribes ha- have been sent up from Jerusalem, which is the religious epicenter for, for uh, Judaism, been sent up from Jerusalem out to where, to where Jesus is to really investigate this guy, Jesus, who is growing in popularity and, and growing in influence. And so we see both the scribes who were teachers of the Old Testament law, and we also see the, the Pharisees, who were this religious party that most of the scribes were part of, of the, the, the Pharisees as well. And so we see scribes and Pharisees together, ready to investigate Jesus, ready to pounce on him, right? They're just ready to take him out. They're just waiting with a scrutinous eye. What can we find Jesus or his disciples doing wrong? And we see verse 2, what do they observe? They observe that, that Jesus' disciples are eating with what is referred to as defiled hands, right? They're eating with defiled hands. And, and here's what defiled hands are. Uh, Mark gives us this kind of extended parentheses. If you look at verses 3 and, and 4, 3 and 4, he gives us this, this big parentheses. And the reason he throws the parentheses in there is because many of, of Mark's readers were, were not necessarily Jewish people. They're from all over Rome, right? And people like us, of course, too, who might not be familiar with Jewish customs. And so he gives us this parentheses, and he explains that the Pharisees and all the Jews had come to, to, to hold their lives up to this thing referred to here as the tradition of the elders. And so let me explain for you the, the tradition of the elders. The tradition of the elders was, was this attempt by, by zealous uh, but misdirected men to prevent people from breaking the Old Testament law. Now, when we talk about the Old Testament law, here's, here's what we're talking about. We're talking about when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, God gives him the law. Jewish people are to follow this. They're to be set apart. They're going to be a kingdom of priests to the world. And so Moses gets this, and this is the Old Testament law. makes him look a little different. It's just an interesting thing for us. We look at it and we kind of scratch our heads. The Old Testament law, we're not bound to that anymore. We're set free. We follow the law of Christ because people were, were trying and trying and trying to live up to the Old Testament law, couldn't adhere to it, just couldn't do it. And the point was exactly that. You can't do it. You can't do it. You need a Savior. You need Jesus. Jesus comes, and yet they're not ready for him. They're not, they're not looking for him. People, many people, are just too prideful to give their lives to Jesus. So what, the, what these Pharisees did is they set up this, this, this kind of uh, tradition, this fence or hedge around the Old Testament law to keep people from even coming close to breaking the, the law. And so an example of this would be, for example, um, Exodus chapter 23, verse 19. This verse uh, says that, that, that Jews shall not boil a young goat that they're going to eat. They're, they shall not boil it 
in its mother's milk. That's kind of compassionate, right? And so you're not going to boil the goat in its mother's milk, rub it in its face, right? So the tradition of the elders went so far as we don't want you to do that. And so what we'll do is we'll put a fence up around that law and we'll force you to, to keep a kosher kitchen. And now you, you have to even have two completely separate uh, sets of of utensils, one for dairy products, one for non-dairy products, so that it will prevent you from even having remotely a microscopic drop of milk into the pot that is boiling the, the young goat. Now, some problems with this fence, this tradition that was set up around what God has already uh, commanded. The problem with this is, is that in doing this, people slowly but surely started to get their eyes on the fence and not on the law, and the makers of the fence, and not on the, the, the one who gave the law. Do you get that? They start to look at man and not look at God. Another problem with this is that uh, in, in, in doing this and, and, and making this mandatory for people, if you were poor, you couldn't afford two sets of utensils, which was very true back then. If you could not uh, afford that, you're kind of, in a bad spot. So even this, this tradition of the elders became a financial burden uh, upon the people. And so now you kind of see how the tradition of the elders worked on top of the law. In, in this instance here in Mark chapter 7, let me explain what's going on. The, the original law that we're, we're looking at here is Exodus 30, uh, 17 through 21. And it says that, that priests, when, when they're about to offer sacrifices, are to wash their hands in, in this bronze basin, this laver, before offering sacrifices. And so to play it safe, the tradition of the elders put this fence around it and said, here's what we'll do. Everybody, let's just have everybody, you have to wash your hands before eating. Now, think about it. It's not a bad idea, right? Wash your hands. I'm going to teach my kids that, right? They probably taught their kids that. Not a bad idea, but they're saying absolutely mandatory, even, all the Bible, even though all the Bible says is, priest before offering sacrifices must do this. And, and, and if you didn't, what they said you would be doing is passing ritual uncleanliness from your hands that may have been out interacting with Gentile non-Jew people, right? And, and taking that, passing it into your food, and then from your food into your mouth and into your stomach, and it defiles your whole body. Now, they're not talking about hygiene, as it might appear. They're talking about ritualism and they're talking about ritual uncleanliness and and for them it was spiritual and so the law that was intended here for the priests when offering sacrifices now by these these scribes and and pharisees has been a bit broadened and put as this unnecessary burden on on all people and so what has happened very clearly over time is people take their traditions these elders have taken their traditions and risen it up to the same standard, to the same authority as the Mosaic law that it was intended to, to serve. And so the traditions of the elders really for these people created this unnecessary burden on the people that in the end really didn't come from God, but it came from man. In the end, didn't really stem from a heart to honor God, but a heart to honor man. Didn't really... Um, stem from a, a desire to be truly inwardly spiritual, but outwardly spiritual and, and looking spiritual for these men. It was hypocrisy. And so when they probed Jesus about this, right, 
They start to probe him about why his disciples are not observing the traditions of the elders. What does Jesus do? He speaks up. And when he speaks up, here's what he does. He doesn't address what they want him to address. He flips it, doesn't he? And he puts it back on them. Look at verses 6, 7, and 8. And let's see how he flips it back on them. He says, And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written? This people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of men. Three words here, right? No, he didn't, right? Are you serious? He just straight up called out. He just called out the most respected religious men of this day. And his tone calling these men hypocrites comes across extremely severe, but I want you to know that his tone is absolutely appropriate. The tone of Jesus, as you look at it, all throughout Scripture is is always appropriate. And so here he's harsh with these self-absorbed, self-righteous religious leaders. He responds harshly. But maybe another example is when he's dealing with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman who has had five husbands, is on uh, man number six, and she's living um, in immorality with him. You see Jesus and his tone there. He doesn't respond harsh, but he responds with compassion. He responds appropriate. And so here, appropriately, is harsh. He's very harsh with these, these religious leaders. And so verse 6, what does he say? It says, Isaiah the prophet prophesied about you, you hypocrites. You've got to be kidding me. I can just imagine right now this vein starts bulging, right? You can see the heartbeat in the vein bulging out of their forehead. I mean, they're just, what? Their, their fists are getting clenched. They just can't believe this. And what he does is he really calls out two particular issues with these, these men. And we'll focus on these two particular issues just for the remainder of our time together. Um, here they are. Um, and, and we'll call this, uh, as we move forward, dangers of religious tradition. Dangers of religious tradition. Now, now hear me on this. Not all religious tradition is bad. It's not all bad. It's good to wash your hands, right? It's a a good idea. But these are some dangers to look out for. And I'll give them to you up front so you can have the outline up front. Very simple. These are the dangers. Bad doctrine, bad hearts. Real simple. Bad doctrine, bad hearts. Bad hearts in verse 6, what does he say? You honor God with your lips, but your heart is far from me. And then bad doctrine Verse 7, he says, you, you worship, and your worship is in vain. It's off because it's based on the doctrines of men, not based on the doctrines of God. And so the next two paragraphs here in Mark chapter 7, each of these paragraphs really focus in on each of these, bad doctrine and bad hearts. The first one, the first paragraph, here's where we're going to look. It's, it's talking about bad doctrine. So let's check it out. Mark 9, uh, or, or 7, 9 through 13. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandments uh, or commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Okay, so here's where he starts. Verse 9, check it out one more time. You have a fine way 
of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Now, this is, this is big. This stuff that he's covering here is unbelievably relevant to our Bostonian culture right now. It just blows my mind how relevant it is to where we're at right now. I think it goes without saying that much of the church today has so elevated the traditions of, of men over even, beyond even, even the Bible. All over Boston this morning, there are people gathering even to practice sacraments that are not prescribed in Scripture, but have been added by the traditions of men. And so here what Jesus says is that in doing this, what you are doing is you are rejecting the commands of God. You are establishing and even elevating your traditions. And so all over Boston this morning, even right now, many are thinking that they are practicing and are all set because they are practicing the traditions of men. And and they're practicing these traditions that in no way have long-term value for salvation. And in doing this, what's happening is you're elevating the tradition of men and you're suppressing, you're suppressing the Word of God. And so here's what has happened. My wife has this, um, my wife has this Bible. And I want to use this Bible for the sake of the illustration, right? This is a beast, right? This Bible is huge. And my wife, those of you guys who know her, is tiny, right? Well, Usually tiny. She's got a big baby. She's due. So don't tell her I said that. I'd be in big trouble. But this, this Bible is about the size of her, her torso, right? I mean, this thing is massive, and that's why her biceps are so huge, because she carries this, this thing around. And so for the sake of illustration, we'll use the big bad Bible, right? So here's, here's my wife's Bible, and the Bible is, is the authoritative Word of God written by the Holy Spirit through men who write it, who record it, and and just some, some points on the Bible. The Bible is historically verifiable. You need to know that. We're not just kind of reading some cute book that a bunch of people got together and said, let's make up a religion. The Bible is historically verifiable, written by 40 authors over a thousand years, three different languages, different continents, yet it says the same thing. Yet it has this continuity. It just absolutely blows my mind. The, the Bible has more documentation than any other ancient document. It's, it's incredible. The Bible, though people have set out to destroy this, the Bible stays because God is all over this thing. This is His Word. And so the Bible is historically verifiable. The Bible is also life-changing. I mean, how many people do I know? I can't even imagine. I can't even count how many people I know whose lives have been changed as they've cracked this book and pressed into this book. It's, it's life-changing. And this Bible is the final authority for us. It is the final authority. It's not the only authority, right? We can study human behavior and learn stuff. We can study nature and learn stuff, but this is the final authority. Everything else submits to this authority. And so for us, it is the final authority for, for life and the final authority for faith. It is the ultimate source. But here's what can very easily happen for us today. And it happens all the time and it, it continues to happen is that people can take things that are not black and white in Scripture and they can act as if they're black and white. So an example of this might be, say, um, say how we dress, right? And you know you love this tie. Don't mock me for it, right? But an example of this might be how we dress. And so some people would say, this is the standard. You must be like this. And I'm not trying to 
bash this because some people, other churches say, no, dress down, that's the standard. Why are you being like this? You should be like this. Listen, some people would say, this is, is black and white. This is how you should look to God. And, and what they've done is they've taken something that's not prescribed in Scripture and they've, they've made it basically a, a, a commandment, right? And so we, we've taken how we dress. Another thing that I, I've seen often is, is what I would call, I would call it theological prowess, right? I mean, I love, I love to study theology. I love it. I enjoy it, right? This is one of three volumes on the New Testament theology, right? Dictionary of New Testament theology. And some people would take this and elevate this to the level of Scripture. I mean, there, there are people who are in my profession, do what I do, and, and they read this more than the Bible. They, they care more about this than they do about the Bible. And the Bible says that knowledge can puff up, right? And so some people have gotten to the place that this is it. I mean, this is, this is it, right? For so many people. Now, don't get me wrong. The Bible makes it very clear. Paul says to Timothy, you need to be very careful to look out for your teachings. You need to be concerned with your theology. It keeps the church from drifting. We're, we're probably uh, going to be more of a theologically minded church than, than most, right? We want to be a theologically minded church. However, this is not what we build our lives upon. This, the Bible, is what we build our lives upon. But what so many people do is they take this and they put it on top of the Bible and, and it comes before the Bible and it becomes the black and white authority in, in our lives. Another thing that's very common in church is that people just get so worked up about is this, right? The guitar, music, right? Jesus wouldn't play a guitar, right? Jesus wouldn't have drums in this church. You know, the Bible talks a little bit more about uh, cymbals and stringed instruments than it does about piano or organ, right? Now, I'm not trying to bash that because on the flip side, some people who are very contemporary in worship and style as a church will bash the other side and say, that's, that's wrong, that's not real, that's not heartfelt. Either side, what we've been doing is many people have taken things that are gray and acted as if it's black and white and becomes this issue that is so big and so uh, ridiculous in the churches today. It's just heavy, and we make this just a big, as if it's some kind of biblical issue, and we just keep piling up and, and, and piling up. Another, another big area, big area, is this right here, which will symbolize for us physical church structures, right? Some people won't show up here because we're not meeting in a steepled building. And so for many people, it's about this. It's about the church. It's about uh, uh, some kind of tradition. It's about some kind of physical structure. And they say, this, this, is, this is big. This is where it's at. This is what, what we, we are, are all about. We go to that church on that corner. That's, that's it. That's, that's me. That's my identity. That's who I am. It's beautiful. The windows are, are awesome. And that's what I'm all about, right? And so this is how we, 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 many people often act. And so what happens is, is things that are really to be preferences, things that are meant to, to just be resources to help us to do what we're really supposed to do, for so many people become black and white, foundational, big issues in the church. Uh, just one final one for you is this. This is, this is our set list, right? This just, we're not trying to be like some rock concert or anything, but this is just how we do it, right? This is just the order in, in which we do it. And, and for so many people, it's about what, is, what does your service look like? I mean, what is it, do you do 
this first? You this first? Is it stand up and down? Is it raise your hand? I mean, what what is this thing all about? And it's about the the order and all that crazy stuff. Liturgy. What 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 are you into? That's what that's big for us, right? For some people, that's where a lot of people stand. Now I'll, t- I'll tell you what we did do when we started this church not long ago at all, is we opened up the Bible and we said, okay, what is necessary? Okay, we look at Acts chapter two and it gives the first summary of the church. And it says, here's what they did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, right, the Bible. So we're like, okay, we're going to read the Bible. We're going to study the Bible. That's big. They, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Okay, communion is going to be something we regularly do here. They, they devoted themselves to prayer. We're going to have focused times of prayer, right, and on and on and on. We, we, we looked at the Bible for this, but the order and the way it looks and the way it fleshes out for, for church to church to church for so many people, it's like that is the main thing. And what happens is we start to just pile all this stuff up on the, the, the Bible and, and act as if all this stuff is etched in stone when it's not. And we've added, and we've added, and we've added, and we've added, and we've added. And I, I just want you to know that as a church, we have a closed hand on this, on the Scriptures. We will not compromise here. But we have a, a loose, we have an, an open hand on, on things that are matters of preference, things that are, are matters of just personal tradition, and we want to honor that, but, but we're not going to have a closed hand, a clenched fist over these things and act as if these things are, are wrong or doctrine in and of themselves when really they're, they're not. So as a church, there's going to be a difference between what we demand and what we do, right? We will call people to live by the book, clearly by the book, there's going to be a difference between what we demand and what we do. Now, there are things that are part of our DNA, how we look. We like the, the acoustic guitar thing. We like this, that. We, we like to meet in homes midweek. And that's what we do. But we're not going to say that church on the other corner is in sin because they don't do it the way we do it. That's wrong. And likewise, right, it, it's, it's wrong. And so we have close-handed and we have some open-handed things. But what the church uh, or, or these men have done, these scribes and these Pharisees have, have uh, sent up from the temple, what they have done is they have demanded so much more than this, haven't they? They've demanded so much more than, than the Old Testament Mosaic law. And they've put all these fences up, and then they've said, these are our traditions, and we demand these things. We demand them. And it was never intended to, to be like that. And so here's what happens. Here's what happens. Two things happen as we pile up tradition and preferences on top of the Bible. One thing is, 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 is what we've already referred to, I would call it unnecessary burdening. We've, we've put this unnecessary burden on, on people where, where because of all the regulations and, 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 and all the rules and all the structure systems things have been so weighted down on the Bible that they can't focus on the main thing, right? And so really what that does is for Christians, many Christians become... Uh, I'd say uh, sidetracked. Many Christians become disillusioned, right? And, and they're just totally just, just focused on these non-essentials. For, for non-Christians, here's what happens. They get confused. Like, what is this Christian faith really all about? For non-Christians, they, they say, I mean, I don't, I don't even know if I want that. They get disinterested because all they see is all this baggage, and they don't even see the main thing, and that is that the Bible points to Christ. The Bible points to Christ. And so I call it unnecessary burdening. And, and in Matthew chapter 11, 
verse 30, you know what Jesus says? He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, right? But yet we say, oh, no, we're going to make it a little heavier, Jesus. I mean, I like what you're all about, but we're going to make it a little heavier. We're going to put all this extra weight on top of the the yoke, the light yoke of, of, of Jesus. And so we add this unnecessary burden. The second thing that I think happens is, is what we get right here from the scripture, command rejecting. And Jesus speci- speaks specifically about command rejecting. Here's what happens. When all this preference and, and tradition starts to pile on to the actual commandments of, of scripture, what happens is it hides the Bible. I mean, from my angle, I can't even see the Bible here until I squat down and, and now I can suddenly see the Bible. And what happens is, is we find ourselves so concerned and so consumed with the extra-biblical that what will happen is, in essence, we start to reject the biblical because we're consumed with the extra-biblical. Extra so let's look at verses uh, 10 through 13 here. Verses 10 through 13, again. Here's what he says. He says, For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles um, father or mother must surely die. So that's command from Scripture. He goes on, But you say... If a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. So let me break this down. Jesus points them to number five of the Ten Commandments, which is honor your father and mother. He speaks elsewhere about, or in there also about, where it says elsewhere about um, some of the consequences of not honoring father and mother, death namely, right? He says, uh, honor your father and mother is what the scripture says. And, and that goes beyond just lip service, like mom, I honor you, dad, I honor you. But honor father and mother, really what that means is that includes the taking care of mom and dad in their old age, right? I'm not going to abandon those who took care of us, right? We're there for them personally, financially, right? And, and, and so the practice that became permitted among the leaders in, in this day um, was, was marking a portion of, of your money, that money that was set aside to care for mom and dad in, your old, in their old age. What you could do is you could mark it as Corbin, right? Let me, let me help you get this. Corbin in, in the Hebrew and the Aramaic means dedicated to God. And so what these hypocritical leaders would do is they say, you can, you can mark that money set aside for mom or dad as, as Corbin, and, and, and so that money that was intended for mom and dad, now you're freed up, it's dedicated to God, and so what can you do? You can donate it to the temple, right? You can help those guys in their salaries, right? I mean, it's just corrupt. It was, it was terrible because now you can say what's for mom and dad is Corbin, tagged not for personal use, but for the Lord. And in essence... What the hypocrites were doing is they were neglecting senior citizens to care for themselves. So like a few months ago when we looked at the book of Ruth and we worked through the book of Ruth, we saw that the Mosaic law was uh, really designed in, in, in so many ways to help the weak. And it was designed to help the, the defenseless. But here what's happening, verse 13, he says, you're making void the word of God that was designed to help them. You're, you're voiding it out because you're trying to help yourself and you're adding these traditions that in the end reject the the word of of god and really today command rejecting happens in so many ways doesn't it as we pile up on top of the bible we can't see the bible we reject the bible and we replace even some biblical commands for some of our modern day traditions and so danger number one of religious tradition 
as we've seen here, is, is just bad doctrine. Just bad, bad doctrine. As we hold tradition up to the level of the Bible, which leads to unnecessary burdening and leads us to reject many of the biblical commands. I mean, why are we going to add all this stuff on top of it when so many of us have trouble even living this out, right? We have to live this and all this other stuff out. It's just, it's just confusing. It's confusing. Here's the next thing. Bad hearts. Bad hearts. Look at verses 14 through 23. We'll read it all here and then, and then burn through it. 14 through 23. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. He said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Another one of those Mark uh, parentheses here. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him, for from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these things come from within and they defile a person. So, here's what Jesus does. After this first teaching, the first paragraph, he gets into a little more teaching, calls people to him. And now remember, the context here is this issue of of the accusation of his disciples not washing his hands. And because he's the rabbi, he's the teacher, his disciples didn't wash the hands. They're going to hold him guilty for it. And, And here's what he says. He says, listen, You are not going to be defiled spiritually because you didn't wash your hands. You're not going to be defiled spiritually because of some external, superficial stuff. He says you are are defiled by the uncleanliness coming out, not by the uncleanliness that goes in. Because what comes out stems from what's happening inside of your heart and is seen in, in sins like sexual immorality and adultery, which would be uh, sexual activity outside of marriage, we, whether um, outside of uh, an already married relationship or before marriage, right? He says it stems, that activity stems from a devile, defiled heart. Theft, murder, coveting, slander, gossip, pride. He says all this stuff stems from a heart that is defiled. It's about what comes out, not about what goes in. And, and, and listen, your faith is not about the external stuff. Your faith is about the, the internal stuff. Your faith is not about the appearance of holiness. I mean, these, these Pharisees were really good at making people think they were holy. We see some of it here elsewhere in, in the New Testament. You see the Pharisees would pray these long, loud, impressive prayers to look really holy and really righteous. And Jesus says, it's not that. It's not about the external stuff. I mean, maybe even this morning, some of you, maybe some of us, I've been guilty of it, coming in and, and, and trying to look a little more righteous than I really am in, in my heart. That was the Pharisees. It was absolutely the Pharisees. But true holiness, true holiness is, is within and actions stem from that. So don't be fooled into thinking, don't be fooled into thinking that putting on all this stuff, all of this stuff even, makes you righteous. Don't be fooled into thinking that it makes you right with God. So don't think that because you've walked into a church building regularly 
that you're righteous. Don't think that because we do it this way that I'm righteous. Don't think that because I do this kind of music and theirs is pretty lame over there, but this is probably more heartfelt. So, uh, so I'm righteous, right? Don't think because I've attained a lot of knowledge, right, and I'm really smart and I know the Bible, I know a lot of doctrine that, that makes you righteous, right? Don't think that because I, I, I dress a certain way and look real pretty makes, makes me righteous, right? No, this stuff, this external stuff is not what makes you righteous. It's not how it works, right? Jesus is very clear. It's not about the external stuff that you put on yourself. It's about what's going on in your heart. In no way, guys, no way can these traditions, some good, some not so good, in no way can the traditions purify your heart. Paul, who, who before coming to Jesus, was blameless. He says, I was blameless in the law. I was blameless in accordance to the traditions of the elders. Paul was a really good Pharisee. He says this in Colossians chapter 2, 21 through 23. He says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. He's talking about all the external regulations. He says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to the things that perish, uh, that are perished as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These, uh, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom, right? They have an appearance of, of self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are, catch this, he says, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So doing all of this stuff isn't going to make you internally holy. Doing all of this stuff will not do it. And so all this added stuff, this self-made religion, is no value really ultimately in changing your heart. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. And so we can go on worshiping as if it's real when you and your heart know it's, it's really not all that sincere. We can go on going through the motions. We can go on showing up to church and thinking this is doing something really having never gotten to the heart of the Scriptures, and that is that the Bible says you need Jesus to change your heart. And so the call, I guess, this morning for all of us is, is to begin to pull back on all of this stuff and, and just kind of set all of this stuff down and, and just get this stuff out of, out of our, our focus for a little while and really start to say, okay, what, what does this say? What does this actually call for me to do, call for me to be, what does this say it's all about, right? Not all this external stuff. And, and really what it's going to bring you to is, has God changed your heart? Has God changed your heart? And so I would, I would ask any of you in here this morning who you've never been in a place where God has, has changed your heart and said, you need, you need Jesus to come in to stir your heart and, and to make you new, give you a new clean, pure heart. If you've never done that, I would call you this morning to call out to him. All this other stuff aside, you call out to Jesus based on what this says for you to do. And then for those of you in here who, who you're, you're a Christian, the question that I have for you is this. What are, what are you adding to the scriptures in your life? What are things that maybe, it's, it's been subconscious because you know the truth, what are some things that maybe subconsciously you've been thinking, this attains something for me, when really it doesn't? What are things that you've been adding to the Scriptures as if it has some kind of value 
And God says it doesn't have value. Paul said it there in Colossians. It doesn't have value to change your heart. It doesn't. So what is that for you? Are you, maybe, you need to ask yourself, have I been looking down my prideful religious nose at other people because they're not doing all of this stuff? When really, God calls them to do this and to live out that. And so, I'm convicted, and, and, and maybe God's doing that in you too. Listen, if you're not a, a follower of Jesus, it, it's not complicated. I apologize on behalf of the church historically that, that many have made it very complicated and, and added all this stuff onto it. it. It's actually pretty simple. Romans 10.9 says this, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, that he is who he said he is, then you will be saved. If you do that, say, Jesus, you're my Lord. I want to follow you. I want to turn to you and, and, and trust in who you are and who you say you are. Then you'll be made right. It's simple. He frees you from the, the eternal consequences of Satan, sin, and death. That's it. That's what we call you to this morning. Can we pray?